Back up, please. Hello and welcome to the Point Blank Show. My guest today is Philip Coggan, who has dedicated his life to making finance user-friendly to the ordinary folk. After working with the FT for two decades, he joined The Economist in 2006 before retiring recently. Well, officially. He has authored several books, but the one that we are going to be talking about today has little to do with finance. His book titled Surviving the Daily Grind, Bartleby's Guide to Work is an amusing take on the oddities of the corporate world. It also offers advice on how to get by and even thrive in this environment. Thanks a lot, Philip, for joining in. Thank you very much for having me. The second line from your book, uh, Philip, is something that we all want to know. And I quote, why do so many managers pollute their utterances with so much inane jargon? And this happens with even good, well-meaning people who use this bureaucratic waffle. Why do you think that is? Yes, well, one of the laws in the book, I suggest various laws, is that jargon abhors a vacuum. (laughs) So one of the reasons is that you've got something to say, you're a manager, just can you work harder? Or can you come in a bit earlier? Or, um, you know, we're behind schedule on this project. But that doesn't seem enough to say it. So things expand um, to take up the worker's time. You need to write, you know, not 100 words, but a 1,000 words. And how can you pad it out to get to that level? You throw in long-sounding words. And second rule, I think, is that jargon is like a, a religious text. The initiated know what it means. Because they know what it means, they are part of this sort of priestly caste of managers. And that sets them apart from ordinary workers who don't understand it. So using the jargon is the kind of badge of status. The third part of it is that not only is it a badge of status, but if you want to get on as a manager, you need to use that jargon. Otherwise, other people higher up the hierarchy uh, won't um, accept you as a manager. And the whole rigmarole of it is effectively obfuscates rather than elucidates. If you If you can't express yourself clearly without using jargon, that probably means you you don't have a clear message to put over. And I think that's the fundamental problem with all this jargon that people use. Right. And I think uh, the part where you said that uh, one needs to use them just to be part of a tribe, it's also your uniform of sorts, the kind of language that you use. And some people are quite proud about it as well. And I've been guilty of uh, using some of those in my so-called corporate life, uh, because that becomes a part of your uh, daily routine. Uh, I just asked a few of my friends to, you know, come up with some jargons that they use. And this is uh, like, for instance, assignments need to be orbit shifting, or that will move Ooh. the needle. Yes. Otherwise, what's what's the point? And, and we need to have a quantum leap because no other leap uh, might do right. I think there is yes. <laughs> holistic yes. and it makes it yeah. sound more pretentious don't you think you know it makes it sound more important than it is yes uh, create a new paradigm is another one in, along those lines or world beating Boris Johnson was very keen on everything being world beating that his government did but usually isn't world beating it's usually not that important you know if you're producing a new kind of software code it's probably not going to be world beating it's probably not going to shift the needle very much but it might be very useful for the company but that but if when you big it up so much and then it happens and it's not that important it just devalues the currency of what you're saying Right. Uh, to, to leverage uh, growth. I think you talk about such jargons in your book as well. Or uh, my favorite came from a friend of mine who talked about uh, a boss asking him, where's your plan B to Z? <laughs> to- oh, plan B to- oh, of course. Can't have just another plan. You've got to have another 25. Yes. yes. 
That's, yes, I've got a whole chapter in the book of, of right. awful examples. Circling back is one I particularly hate in emails. So what oh. circling back means is that I bothered you about this before. You didn't reply, but I'm going to bother you again. You know, touching base. No, don't touch base. <laughs> um, just, you know, contact me. That's fine. Do you think that uh, email itself has changed the way we communicate with each other. I think it was, uh, there was an article by, uh, in the Atlantic about, is Google making us stupid many, many years ago? I, I forget the author now. He talked about uh, Friedrich Nietzsche. His writing style became more terse and telegraphic when he discovered the typewriter. And his friend told him that, hey, that you're, you might even invent an idiom because you're getting, you're, you're getting things in a very summarized or succinct manner. And he said that, yes, our writing equipment takes part in the way we think or some such. Do you think email has gotten, like as discussed in India, I don't know how it is there. If I have to save my back, I will write an email that says as discussed, comma, and then I'll continue that, hey, you and I were in a meeting room and we discussed this. So don't, it, it's not all on me. I'm sure that's a very good example, actually. Yes. Of, of something where you're kind of making somebody complicit or saying, well, you ought to know what I'm talking about because, you know, we mentioned it before. Taking things offline. That's another one that uh, people are very fond of, isn't it? You know, which means... <laughs> Let's it often doesn't mean uh, uh, offline. It just means that, you know, yeah. uh, you're already in a meeting, you know, when you discuss it, and they just to take it offline. I think it probably has changed language. It's not all bad. I mean, I think mm. uh, simplifying language can be good. Language changes. You know, we don't speak like people did in Shakespeare's day. You know, the English language is a classic one, which has adopted lots of words from, you know, uh, from India, for example, bungalow is a classic right. example of a word used in England, and from French and German and so on. So there's there's nothing wrong with change. I think the problem is when the change ends up making it less clear that the, rather than more clear. Uh, it's fine to develop a word for a new concept. What's not good is to develop five words where previously we had one perfectly suitable word for the same concept. So, for example, if you have to say no, uh, some might, some people might say, I don't possibly think I can, uh, instead right. of just saying no. Or the other example is uh, inventing a word which, a prepone is something that is quite Indian, ah. apparently. So we always prepone our meetings, just an opposite of, you know, postpone. So I don't, I, I don't think there is a word like that in the, in the dictionary, but yeah. So, and also I think there is one that we use, I'm not sure if you do, Philip, is uh, if you get a long email asking you to do 10 things, and you don't want to go into the details of it while responding. You just write, I will do the needful. So that basically... Oh, really? <laughs> well, I quite like that, actually. That's that's uh, that's that's nice and short, isn't it? And at yeah. least it's clear. I, I don't think there's anything wrong with that. There are things like onboarding. You know, when you join a company, it becomes onboarding. It's as annoying to me as deplaning is. You know, you don't plane when you get onto the aircraft, do you? You deplane when you got off, according to the people. But uh, yes, just getting off, you know, what's wrong with that as a... That's an idea. <laughs> is it any different in the West, in Britain, let's say, because English is the first language? Is it any better? For instance, if you disagree with someone, you might start the sentence by saying, with due respect, which can yeah. be construed as, you know, you're respecting the other person. But in other words, it's like, you're a fool. Please listen to me or, or correct me if I'm wrong. That's something that we use often, which basically means that you are wrong. And, yes. and it is. So, <laughs> Yes, I think there's there's whole examples. People can probably find this on the internet of those kind of English phrases. So um, that's very interesting. If an English person says that, means really that's completely crazy, and I'm I'm not going to pursue it any further. Or let's do lunch does not mean let's do lunch. It means I'm making a vague commitment to it, but I'm not really going to see it through. Because if you meant let's do lunch, you'd say let's do lunch on 
February the 17th or, you know, whenever or next Wednesday. So there are some ex- advantages to that, that kind of approach in the sense that we are trying to be polite and not be, you know, explicitly rude uh, and get round things. Uh, the problem, again, is you lose clarity if you use too many of these examples. I, I genuinely think I've seen lots of memos from chief executives in my time. And sometimes you look at it and you think, if I need Google Translate for this um, memo, and it's written in English, there's something you know severely wrong. It reads almost as if it was written in English, translated into another language on Google Translate, and then translated back into English to come up with a kind of word salad, which I think is a, that is a nice new phrase, word salad. I think now you have, uh, Philip, uh, Google, uh, sorry, it's, it's a chat GPT. Yes. Put the whole thing and say, please simplify this for me. And uh, another thing I realized, I've used... Philip, about six times in this podcast already. Is that also something that happens very often that, hey, to use the other person's name just to lend a little more credibility when it could just be fluff, for instance? <laughs> yes, it is quite an American thing. And it's fine. It's very nice of you. It's it's kind of one of the things where if it's overdone, you know, if it's every sentence starts with, well, Philip, you know, you'll understand that our, our um, minute, the car I'm trying to sell you is, you know, a top of the range, you know, hybrid model or something. That kind of thing, it can be annoying. It's, it comes from, I think it's one of those great guides, I think, how to win friends and influence people. I think Dale Carnegie, he may well have told, told Americans to use that approach. And, you know, it can help. Touching people is supposedly um, brings, I think, oxytocin into the, into the body and therefore encourages sort of feelings of togetherness. So all that. But if somebody touches you too much, you kind of go like yeah. that, don't you? So, uh, and different cultures touch people, you know, more or less often. <laughs> but, you know, it's it's a question of not taking anything like that to excess. Over the years in your career, when you've interviewed, you know, a bunch of folks, you've read annual reports for translating it for people to understand. Who are the ones who do it right? How do some people do it better than others? If you if you can think of any examples. Well, Warren Buffett is, is the classic example of somebody who writes annual reports in a kind of folksy way, but he uses common uh, or day examples to illustrate his point famous one you know when the tide goes out you find out who's been swimming naked for example never ask a barber whether you need your hair cut because obviously you know he's biased um uh, i love the one the right the right thing to do was when the car internal combustion engine uh was invented was not to buy shares in car companies but to go short horses i always thought that was rather nice um, those sort of folks examples. Now he, you know, clearly is a very intelligent man. Mm. Clearly knows he's intelligent and kind of, you know, doesn't hide his intelligence, but but does express his ideas in in such terms that normal people can understand them. And that's you know plays a significant part, I think, in his reputation as an investment guru. And is it also the upbringing or the the education? Uh, because these days, and this is a true story, earlier today, I have a four-year-old, so it was his sports day today. And the tagline was, uh, skill up to scale up. Now, it had nothing to do with the actual <laughs> event. It was more, and, and I, I, I mean, it's a great school. I, I've been there myself. The teachers are great. Hmm. But I think everybody's falling in that trap to draw parallels with the corporate world right from an age because it's, it's that was meant for the parents, obviously, who are all millennials yes. sitting in the audience, that uh, we are going to teach these kids to pack their toys. And there were some fun and games where they had to put the toys in the basket in the, in the right time and tie their shoelaces, be good kids. All right. That was the scaling, I mean, skill part, which will help them to scale up in their in their life. So is, is this that it, it's becoming so ubiquitous everywhere? 
that and it's a little uh, you know uh, fallout of uh, the jargonized world that we live in and probably not so great then yes i think well a recent enthusiasm in politics has been these three word slogans right take back control yeah. um brexit means brexit uh, well make america great again is four words i suppose but you get the idea so a very simple punchy idea and they they folk they test these on focus groups they seem to work and um we have a really annoying one if you travel on the london underground which is they say see it say it sorted um which i know is five words but it's three concepts three things one after right. the other and after a while um you get rather fed up with hearing it the trouble is again if you overuse these things uh, and you rely on such a simple message that it's not really sorted. If you, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, many a time you might see something on the tube station and say it, and and, it, and the guy will go, oh, well, maybe somebody will pick it up in a minute, you know, and it doesn't get sorted at all. So, um, and once people, you know, have been told to rely on these kind of simplistic approaches and they don't work, then they get extremely cynical. Uh, one of my favorite stories that I'd read some time back was uh, that of a pilot. There was this uh, 1982. British Airways flight from London to Auckland and it had flown into a volcanic ash and it's a it's a quite a famous story where basically all the four engines had stopped the co-pilot lost his oxygen mask the instruments were all over the place the needles were off their scales and then the pilot decided to have a word with the passengers and I will read verbatim what he said and it was it was described later as a masterpiece of understatement. And he was a Brit. I don't know if that has any correlation there. Mm -hmm. He he said, ladies and gentlemen, this is your captain speaking. We have a small problem. All four engines have stopped. We are doing our damnedest best to get them going again. I trust you're not in too much distress. That was (laughs) it. And and the the problem was conveyed. There was a sense of desperation. There were no false promises, which happens in the corporate world. And he also said that, hey, we are trying our best to do this, but you pray to God, perhaps. Is that also something that comes out of a habit or a practice? Because the first thing that we think of in the corporate world today is how do I paint it with a fancy word when these were very simple 37 words? Yes, I, it does sound like a good example. I, I'm sure I'd be interested to have been a, you know, um, seen a video of what the passengers, how they reacted. You know, you, if anybody's seen the classic film, airplane then they'll you know when the passengers all start screaming and running. there's a couple of examples there is an example in the book of a korean airline where the co-pilot noticed that the pilot was making a mistake in i think in choosing the right runway and didn't like to say anything because of the hierarchy that was involved and it was you know a, a small crash resulted uh, and and that's quite a, a good mm. example of how uh, not communicating at all can be a problem yeah. as well as you know over-communicating or communicating incorrectly. But to go back to the whole uh, example of it, I think the problem is if you don't communicate clearly, then your staff don't understand what they're supposed to do. And then that surely must make them less efficient and also makes them more cynical because they think, what on earth is this person on about? Surely you want a company, the employees of the company, to understand essentially what the company is trying to do and to understand their part in it. And that requires nice, clear language. Right. And it has its benefits. You, I think, write about uh, a Japanese bank, uh, Nomura, who did a study and they found, uh, uh, what was it? They found that the, the companies having a simple language in their annual general reports did better in terms of earnings, was it? Uh, as compared yeah, to those, yeah, yeah, that's right. A couple of years ago, that and um, the, the earnings were better than those that used simpler language. Now, the correlation and effect there could be interesting. It could be that you know companies express themselves clearly 
um, just do better. Or it could be that if they were doing badly, they used a lot more convoluted terms to disguise the fact that they were doing badly. So right. you can pick and choose. I think you'd need a more you know long-term scientific study about that. But often, when you read an annual report, the more waffle there is, the kind of more suspicious you should get. There's an old um, Ralph Waldo Emerson quote, which I like, which is the the more he mentioned his honour, the faster we counted our spoons. So the more kind of people big up one particular aspect of themselves, the more you start to get suspicious. You don't need to tell everybody you're honest if you're really honest. Uh, and it's it's more, you know, the, the crooked people who will tend to emphasize that. And empathy is something that you also uh, talk about a little bit without using that word, which has also become a jargon of sorts in the in the world where, uh, and you didn't have a great experience there. Were you asked, uh, who are you? Nobody told me that you were coming by your first manager. Did yes, <laughs> my first day at the Financial Times. That's right. And I turned <laughs> up and the, the guy who was in charge of me said, I had no idea that you were supposed to turn up. I didn't know I was getting it. I remember a staff, which did not, you know, was not an encouraging first day. I did last 20 years. So it worked out in the end. But, it, you know, with that manager, it was a bit of a, more of a struggle. Obviously, there was some problem Further up the hierarchy, the guy should have been told that I was coming. Um, but still, um, that is a problem with um, extended management chains. And the jargon is cascading, information cascading down the chain. Uh, and, and that's a good concept. But when you use the term too often, you start to think, well, usually when it's cascading, it's raining buckets and I'm getting wet and miserable. <laughs> that's so right. I hope you can't hear my cat who is now meowing and wants her food. Yeah, but, um, would you like to take a break? Here and walk across. Yeah. <laughs> would you like to feed her? Would you like to take a break? No, no, it's fine. Ah, it's all right. There she is. And uh, uh, there is also hope at the end of it all because I loved uh, the example that you gave of Danny Boyle, who back in 2012 did that brilliant uh, choreography of. Uh, the 2012 Olympics. Yes. He basically let the volunteers know that, hey, it's a secret. Don't let it out. We are not going to sign any non-disclosure agreement. And he trusted them to be fair and not, not leak that message. And it worked. It did. Yes. Another example is the, the building of the Empire State Building, uh, which happened in two years, which is astonishing, you know, considering how long it takes to book up a lot of skyscrapers. The, the man in charge of that um, trusted his workers. He wouldn't let them work on windy days, which were highly dangerous. There's a very, there's a famous picture of the workers mm. sitting on a girder just having their lunch. Yeah. He arranged for food, including hot food, to be brought up to them. And the mm. thing was done, you know, on time and to budget, whereas most construction projects go over. And at the time, most, you know, construction projects, particularly in the States, were had a kind of, you know, the literally whip-cracking form and, yeah. you know, bullying the workers to go and that, 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 that doesn't tend to work not in the mm. not in the long run do you have to be a good human being as well to be a good manager because the common thread is you know the the, the bloke treated the he rather treats all his film crews with respect uh, you you pay them nobody goes hungry uh, you also respect the judgment of the people under you uh, because they are the experts in it these people seem to tick those uh, check boxes uh, and which also means that you need to first be a decent chap would that be right to be a... Yes, I, a, I think that's manager. right. And I think you just use the term empathy. And I think the, the manager has to understand what the worker wants out of this project. Not that they want to get paid, but they want to mm. have an interesting, fulfilling um, day's work. And if you get an interesting, fulfilling day's work, you know, then you're likely to do it well. Right. A similar example is if, if you increase the pay above the minimum wage, mm. and you pay a slightly higher wage, 
then you tend to find that workers feel more valued and they work better. And staff turnover also falls significantly. And that's and staff turnover is a significant cost factor because every time someone leaves, you, know, you have to find another worker, which maybe you know, mm. take weeks or months, and you have to train them all over again. So I think you're right. I think the fundamental point I was trying to make in the book as well is if you go back to the Industrial Revolution, where what happened was you took people who were used to working for themselves and you brought them into factories. The decision they made was to use kind of iron discipline. You couldn't talk uh, out of turn. You know, you, you had to make them into an army to get them to sit in the same place for 10 hours a day or 12 mm. hours a day. But the modern economy is not made of those kind of simplistic mechanical processes. It's made of workers who are being creative, who need mm. to make decisions on their own. Uh, there's a good example. There's a British chain called Timpsons, which where they actually employ lots of ex-convicts. And they say to the person, the people, you know, the one rule is, you know, never take money from the till, obviously. But, you know, if you if you think a customer might give you a deal by knocking 10 percent off, you know, then then do that. We trust you to do that. We trust you, you with the ability to make decisions. Thus, once the person in charge of the shop and it usually is just the one person, they feel, you know, a sense of ownership, sense of involvement that means that they do tend to react well to that kind of trust. I think there are both kinds. I think one one with uh, Microsoft uh, during Steve Ballmer's time where he was one guy who would come really close to you, to your eyes, and they would be uh, they, they would say that you could see his veins popping out. That was one kind where he could he'd get his way. And then you've got the, the Nadelas of the world. You've quoted from another book uh, called The Art of Fairness, uh, where yes. I think there's, there's one line in the book uh, you, where one pilot talks about how being a great pilot is like a you know great horseman yelling and cursing at your horse for not doing. It can have some effect, but not as much as being in tune with the animal. So here you might want to have a parallel with the team itself. You can always scold and crack a whip, but may not always uh, deliver the results. And uh, there's an interesting segment on interviews, uh, which I quite yes. like. Inane interviews uh, and like, where do you see yourself five years down the line or what are your weakness? And uh, I remember my first interview is someone from HR, and this is a very reputed family-owned outfit uh, in India without naming it. So somebody from HR sat next to me while just observing me throughout the interview while not asking any questions. It was apparently some psychometric uh, test where they wanted to see my facial expressions and the body language. So I don't know where you would slot it that, hey, this is great and masterstroke or you know, silly. I don't know which end of the spectrum it is. It seems a little creepy. It depends how close they were. Did you get the job? I did. <laughs> oh, well, good. Well, you must have reacted well. Um, one of the examples I um, use is this woman who went in for an interview and the guy started scrolling through her, I think her Spotify list and her things saying, oh, this is a rubbish tune. Why have you chosen this one? And, you know, making fun of various things about her, her social media posts. Really wasn't relevant to the job. You know, maybe if she was applying to be a music critic, that would be a reasonable approach. But a lot of interviewing is done with a set of subjective questions, which can only reveal the prejudices of the people who set them. And what you need is, a, the studies show, a set of standardised questions that apply to everybody, and thus people can be judged fairly on the same criteria. And there's a, there's a wonderful example from orchestras, where for a long time they were very poor at getting female players into orchestras. So they decided to have the people play behind a screen um, to see how good they were uh, in the hope that, you know, you would not uh, judge female players more, more harshly. Uh, but they had to take that a step further and they had to get 
for the women to take everybody to take their shoes off because if the women walked in behind the screen in heels, then the men could hear and then they could still be prejudiced against them. And once they did that, hmm. the proportion of women in, in orchestras increased significantly. And hmm. so another factor of interviewing is you need to have, if you have an all white male uh, pa- panel or, you know, uh, an all Indian panel in India, you know, all male Indian panel, yeah. then you're probably not going to end up with a diverse set of uh, candidates. So, you know, you need to have other people, if you want the company to look, you know, more uh, mm. multicultural, then you have to have a multicultural panel of interviewees. Ah, right. And then some interviews uh, are wackier than others. I think you you write about uh, one, Charles Schwab, was it? The, the organization where Walt Bettinger, he, he would take folks out for breakfast and then deliberately mess up their orders and see how yes, they react. Yes, after mess up their orders, yeah, and then see how angry they got. That, that was... <laughs> I quite like, I mean, not a practical one in the mass, <laughs> but uh, I, I thought that was good because you, I do judge people. I don't know if you're the same, but you know, how people treat secretaries, how people treat, yeah. you know, doormen, waiters, you know, if you're going to be bullying to people who don't have the power to fight you back, then you're probably going to be bullying to other members of staff when you're out of sight, you know, or out of sight of the managers. And you don't want that kind of person. Earlier this month, in fact, the founder of TechCrunch, who's now a venture capitalist, he he tweeted, uh, his name is Michael Arrington. So he tweeted that he was almost going to close a deal with an entrepreneur, but did not because he was rude to his waiter. It, it has some million views or something on it. So yeah, yes. I mean, this is uh, very much the case. And then there are these, uh, I think your book uh, is full of ironies. This This one, like more hours spending on the job does not necessarily mean better productivity. When companies like Netflix, you write, they offered unlimited vacations, employees tended to take fewer than other outfits that have a cap. Uh, Then uh, Peter principle that you rise to the level of your incompetence, that a sales manager may not be a great brand manager. or Yes. And there's one that I like the most is office plan or the architecture, the open plan, which was designed to encourage interactions. It led to the face-to-face time reduced and emails is something that people started writing more to each other how does that work i mean that study was very interesting they put monitors on people to um you know to judge how they moved and how so they could tell how close people interacted with one another mm-hmm. and one of the problems of course with an open plan office is it tends to be very noisy so if everybody's mm-hmm. on the phone you know it's quite hard to concentrate so this i mean i did this at the economist you know, i would put headphones on i was somebody was right behind me making phone calls I would put my headphones on and listen to classical music so mm. I could concentrate and shut out all interactions. You then feel conscious about how much you would annoy other people. So rather than go over and talk to somebody, which would annoy anybody surrounding them, you would send them an email to reduce to reduce that effect. This study found that the use of emails increased significantly. And it did thus you lost one of the things that's supposed to work, which is, you know, you move around the office and you get the serendipity of bumping into people somewhere else and you get the ideas. It only really works, I think, when you go and make make a cup of tea or a cup of coffee, you might bump into somebody else and then you've got the excuse to talk. So, yeah, open plan offices don't work brilliantly. And um, I can't remember which company, it was just in the news today, but they're reintroducing the cubicle because Zoom calls are so noisy that they distract everybody. So they're creating kind of like a plastic tent around you so that when you're having a Zoom call, you're not disturbing everybody else and not being disturbed. But that's you know like creating another mini office. I loved it. I, when I was at the FT, I had my, 
my own office and I could focus entirely on my own work, which was I, I found wonderful. Lucky man. Not everybody so, had like, that. This, this, I'm in a library here, you know, like a room that's like my library, so I can work in here. These days, there are uh, what they call phone booths, uh, which are identical to yes. the ones that are in your in, in London, where you can do that public call. So there are these phone booths where you can walk in and, and do the Zoom call. That has become, and you can get some work done there because there are no distractions. You often find that these things get booked up very, very quickly, yeah. which yes. suggests that people want more of them and not, not fewer of them. Similarly, I think work expands to fill time is what you write. Yes. Did that happen at the, you know, in, in professions like The Economist, for instance, you had a very strict regimen. You just couldn't. You had to make sure that uh, you go to print on a Thursday, which means you have to be in from Monday to, to any publishing house. Does yeah. it happen in all professions? I think it does. I think, you know, so even at The Economist, so I could I would often file my copy early, but then you wouldn't you wouldn't want to go home because it would be appearing to show that you were skiving off. Right. Um, and so you sometimes you'd find yourself using up time to you know reading something you probably wouldn't be bothered to read or I'd be sometimes following the cricket uh, which is my enthusiasm even though you know I'd done my work for the day that is a problem and that's why working from home I thought was a great liberation so if you go back again to the history of work and as I was saying people were brought into factories people used to work mainly at home they were on a farm they were you know maybe working in a textile industry a spinner and somebody would bring them the you know, the textiles, they would weave them or spin them or whatever. Uh, and they do it when they could, you know, and if they had to make a meal or they had to deal with the children, then they do that and then they go back to it. Nobody was standing over them, you know, saying, no, you must do it now. It's two o'clock. So that's work time. And then we got taken into factories and offices and things. And in offices, bits of paper were being passed around, right? And you had an, like a, somebody wanted to check you were working all the time. But now we, we don't have to do any of that. You and I are communicating over whatever it is, 4,000 miles. We, we can email, we can Zoom, we can WhatsApp, we can uh, use Snap, Snapchat, we can use, what's the one that we use all the time? Slack. Yes, exactly. Yeah. We can use all these things. And it's clear that we, you know, if I don't answer for two hours, that probably means I'm not there. But and people are aware of that. So they take their phone with them if they have to pop out and then they do answer. There's a kind of almost Victorian attitude we get in with some British politicians is, no, you can't be working hard if you're working at home. But that's not the case at all. The studies of the pandemic found very little effect on productivity of people yeah. working from home. The only effect, in fact, is people tended to work slightly longer hours because, you know, there was no demarcation between work and home and so you know they might end up doing something at 10 at night or on three o'clock in a sunday afternoon we won't have that repeat of that Finnish tax inspector wasn't it early 2000s where he was found dead at his desk but it took them three days to realize that he was no more because nobody really bothered finding out and there was oh, really? <laughs> yeah there was no there was no email communication or slack at the time where yeah. they thought that he was there early and he stayed back home late didn't go back home and his head was on the desk and then they realized that, hey, he's no more. So that it, it took them a while, about two to three days to realize that Gosh, he was, he was yeah. Friends, that does sound very sad as well as yes. alarming, yes. Today, I, don't, I mean, as you said, if you're not, if you don't communicate for two hours, then they'll wonder if something is yeah, wrong. So I the, think we are, yeah, yeah. In, and also because you've written through pre-internet and pre-collaboration yes. tools and now, how was it back then in terms of what we take things for granted today? When I joined the FT, I had a, a typewriter. You would write on a white piece of paper which had carbon behind it. And when you finished, the white copy would go to one person and then the carbon copy you'd keep yourself. And I think a third copy went to somebody else, so it could be edited. But it meant that, of course, if you were writing a long article, a thousand words, it would take 
lots of different pieces of paper. If you made a mistake or wanted to reorganize the piece, you'd have to use Tipex, if you remember that, or Snowpakes, and then retype quite a lot. And it was incredibly cumbersome. So the internet from that point of view was enormously beneficial to productivity, as was, of course, the, the ability to find people's phone numbers, which we used to comb through these enormous fat directories to try and track them down. So there have indeed been gains, but of course they get they can get frittered away in, in journalism by the need to write in, in so many different forms. You know, I started a blog in the late 90s and then you you know you're doing podcasts, you're doing video interviews, you do, you know, there's the, the same story as being churned out in, in lots of different ways. Is that more productive? I you know I don't know whether the readers are more in, in, in um, informed if we do that. So then do you get mad when younger journalists might complain about stuff and you'd say, during my time, just to get this <laughs> this much out, I, I try, to try not to do that. I try. My daughter's just doing some journalism for the university newspaper. So she's, she's experienced the hard way when people don't want to run her stories and those, all those kinds of things. It's a frustrating life, it can be, certainly. Talking about all things frustrating, you write about meetings, which is... Oh, yes. <laughs> That's definitely by Bette Noir. So the Bartleby's law is that 80% of the time, 80% of the people in meetings is wasted. So the next time you're in a big meeting, just look around, see how many people actually speak in the course of the meeting. It's usually only a handful. Uh, see how many people are looking at their phones or looking bored, or especially if it's a big meeting. Did they all need to be there? You know, if you think about it, if you have 20 people in for a two-hour meeting, that's 40 hours of, of company time that, that, that you're using up of those employees. And the productivity you could make by not having them all there or by just either you're going to tell them what they need, tell them something they need to know, which can be done in an email or discussing a decision. Are all those 20 people entitled to take part in that decision or is it, are they all going to just um, assent to whatever the boss of the meeting says? That's another question. A lot of people try and find ways of getting around it. I don't know if we, we want to discuss that, but uh, the Jeff Bezos example at Amazon, uh, he believes that uh, no meeting should be held in people that can't be fed by uh, two pizzas. Right. Um, and the second one is that everybody must write a memo explaining what the subject of the meeting is, and it must be read in silence before the discussion actually starts, because otherwise you... Um, you waste time asking for details when, you know, actually it's written down in front of you. And and that also forces you to think. Uh, they say that uh, writing is the best form of thinking and that if you've put, put it down on paper, you've taken the effort to not waste half an hour in setting the context or the agenda for the meeting. And I, a friend of mine works in Amazon and what you just said happens even here at the grassroots where he said that if somebody doesn't have anything to add to that printout, they can just walk away from the meeting in the first 10 minutes. They, they need not participate in it. So... Also, you talk about Martin Lindstrom, the author of uh, another book uh, uh, called uh, uh, Ministry of Common Sense, where he brings mm. a clock to the meeting, mm. in, where, you know, a sand clock, is it? Where half an hour and everyone's out. I think it's just, yes, I think it's just a normal clock. But yeah, yeah. a sand clock would work just as well. I mean, <laughs> other people suggest standing up in a meeting because you don't really don't want to stand up for that long. And if you stand up, then it, the meeting will happen more quickly. I think there do have to be some meetings. There's, there's this idea of the scrum which is like a daily meeting where, you know, it's only five or 10 minutes. There's something to be said for that. Start the day, say, these are the things we want to do today. You know, Fred's doing this, Joan's doing that, whatever. And there's something useful in that. And I don't say we shouldn't have any meetings whatsoever. I just say they're just vastly overused. Um, and often the person who's called the meeting 
doesn't seem to have an idea of the purpose of the meeting and too many people attend. And we could honestly improve productivity in many companies significantly just by having fewer meetings and having fewer people attending. Because think of the work you could do yeah. when you're not in meetings. There's a phrase which goes, you are either working or you are in a meeting. You can't do both. Yes. Zoom made things worse, I think. Zoom yes. lengthened meetings. You wrote about Microsoft, didn't you, where the average time of meetings went up from 35 minutes to 45 minutes during the pandemic. Because Yes. And, and also, how do you bell the hippo that is the highest paid person's opinion yes. sometimes wins? So how do you call that bullshit on the guy who must be talking something that you know is uh, the, the example I think in the book is Emperor's New Clothes or the one that I'm yes. reading to my four-year-old where who's going to say that, hey, you're, you're not wearing any. There was a very good HBO documentary on uh, Theranos, the company which claimed to do magical things with one drop of blood that they'll bring you right. back tests from Elizabeth Holmes. So they had a brainstorming meeting which lasted, ended up going on for two hours where instead of discussing a technical issue with the product, they were debating what should they name the cloud where all the data will be stored. And they ended up calling it Yoda or something. Instead of focusing on the problem, they just were in a fairy tale land of themselves when everybody just smiled and participated. Well, you mentioned earlier on um, Parkinson's law about work expanding to fill the time available. He had another law about the law of triviality, which was that you'd spend a lot of time on the most trivial things within the meeting, you know, the new parking spaces oh. outside the company or, you know, the lunch menu or whatever. And then you spend no time on the really significant issues. That's mm. because sometimes the trivial issues are, are, are things that everybody has an opinion about. So whereas, you know, you would have a less likely if, that people would have a very strong opinion about, you know, which software to use if they're not a software engineer. Mm. So therefore, um, they're not going to chip in on that on that bit of the the meeting, but I, I think you're right. The the great difficulty is in um, sorting out the sort of mm. the important bits from the uh, the trivia, and that's where a good manager again comes in. You know, having a a set agenda, knowing which staff are important for this particular project or not. There are some example, you know, the Scrum that I was mentioning before, where you you um, bring in people from different um, areas of the company and get them to work on a particular project, that's that's fine. It's all about to use uh, planning rather than pre-planning, which is another one of those annoying um, yeah. new words that have emerged because obviously pre, this pre is implied in the planning, right? And uh, go back to the meeting subject, you know, there are lots of problems with Zoom meetings that come up and, and, and the analysis of video calls mm. is that people feel self-conscious about being observed as, as you know as I am now with uh, you watching me because you realize that you know you've you know maybe my hair isn't right and my glasses keep falling down all those sort of things uh, and it's like the big brother is watching you yourself are watching your, yourself is some research yes. that's found didn't they but where you're looking at yourself more than so that's another problem with zoom where people are self-conscious aren't they Yes, indeed. And it's it, there is a sort of psychological effect that, that people have observed of it, that it starts to make people nervous and, and itchy. I'm yeah. I'm a sort of slightly restless person anyway, so I'd want to probably be getting up. And, you know, if I was talking to you on the phone, I'd be probably pacing up and down because, you know, that would be easier than, but now I'm sitting in a rigid position. And if you'd make people do that for too long in a day, you know, it starts to give them the jitters. What would you have done had this been a video meeting of the, for this long? Would you have been tearing your hair apart already? <laughs> well, this is a bit. I, I, I mean, I am on video with you, so yes, um, it, yes, I am slightly. I get slightly itchy <laughs> after a while, uh, and right. some of the you know some of the ones that the economists could go on for an hour and a half. So I tend to have oh. the the camera off. So if I needed to 
nip and get a coffee or something. And I know they'd still be talking by the time I came back and nobody would have asked me anything. So I'd be fine. And and these days people will tell you to go on mute. Please go on mute. Otherwise, oh, yes, yeah. that, that, does that, has that happened with you? Where you've been? It had, I had an incredibly embarrassing thing where we had a meeting on a bank holiday Monday. And I, you know, was not, I was just listening. So I went for a walk and I thought I'd press mute. But uh, in fact, somehow I'd unmuted myself. And so I was like climbing hills and there was heavy breathing going on and tramping. And then, and then I wasn't, it, the phone was in my pocket. So I, you know, I didn't. Uh, and I got back saying, mute yourself. You know, like people had twi- sent tweets to me and emails saying, shut up. Um, and only when somebody said in the meeting, oh, that's Phil Coggan. He's, you know, he's obviously not on mute that I realized and shut myself off. <laughs> and and last last bit, uh, a few few more minutes. And uh, yeah. there's something that you also talk about, the accountability right from the top, where the leaders have to lead by example. Another, another cliche, but quite so, because if you're, uh, the guy on the top himself is either a crook like uh, Jeffrey Skilling was, or at least he served jail time, didn't he? Where yes. he was a former boss of Enron. He said, hey, look, I am not an accountant. So don't ask me what went wrong, where leaders may not take or managers may not take accountability, which is another problem that if you don't put your hand up and say, hey, I you know, messed up, uh, that also gets the employees not to trust them as much. And they'll make more mistakes, like the example that you gave of that airline, uh, which crashed because... He was too squeamish to talk to his boss. Yes. I I mean, there's a fundamental mismatch, isn't there, between the argument that CEOs or chief financial officers need to be paid enormously oh. because they're so skillful that, um, you know, they are responsible for the lion's share of a company's success. And the argument when things go wrong that, well, they couldn't possibly have known. And, you know, I think there was a, it was Dick Fold um, claimed that he didn't know about this particular account where some of the money was kept because he um, he didn't know how to open the attachment. Well, you know, he was <laughs> earning $100 million a year. So, you know, opening attachments to emails is a skill you'd think that ought to come under that. I generally tend to believe that the success of companies is built around all the staff and not an individual. And therefore, I'm deeply suspicious of the argument that CEOs should be paid a fortune. But obviously, it should be paid more than you right. know, the average worker. But it, the ratio used to be 20 times, I think, in 1970. And then it got up to 300 or 400 times. And that's just way too much. It, it, it's another cl- example of unintended consequences in that mm-hmm. they linked um, CEO pay to share performance. And we had a long bull market in shares. So, you know, they made out like gangbusters as a result of it. But let's come back to, you know, come as we're nearing the end, come back to the, the golden rule, which is don't be an asshole, I think, which is, is very important. You know, treat your employee, employees as if they're adults. Learn to trust them. Obviously, some people won't behave trustfully, and then you have to get around to firing them. But the vast majority of people want to do a good job, want to be appreciated, want to show their skills, and will respond if they are allowed to. So you're not a sergeant major. The, a football coach, cricket coach, brings out the best in their um, team. So the England cricket team, if I can controversially refer to them, have gone from being like hopeless. They won one game in 17 to, I think, winning 11 out of the last 12. Basketball, they changed their, right? Yeah, basketball. They changed their coach. They changed their captain. They attack the ball. They try to get wickets. They 
declare, you know, Ben Stokes in the last test match um, against New Zealand declared the first innings on the first day after a 58 over, I think it was the second earliest. And that was trusting his players to respond to those incentives. Uh, and it's a fantastic example. Obviously, you have to have skillful players to do that. The best managers are like that. If you try and be a sergeant major, you can work, you know, for a little while, you get football managers in the English Premier League who are good at, you know, taking a losing team and instilling a bit of discipline. But after a season or two, or even half a season, that tends to run out. You can't shout at people forever. Yes. And I think don't be an asshole is a very good way to you know live the corporate life where you, you've got to be decent and let, let people do their bit and, and work hard. Yes. And not everybody is a good manager. That's another thing I want yeah. to mention that, that, that the law of you know everybody gets promoted until they're incompetence. But it's also everybody gets promoted until they stop enjoying their job. That's that's another rule. So, you know, you may be, as you say, a very good salesperson. That doesn't make you a good manager. Um, my father was a, a teacher. He wanted all his life to be a headmaster. When he was actually a headmaster, he wasn't teaching anymore and he didn't enjoy it as much. If you're a journalist, you can get promoted and be a manager. Then you're not writing stories. So, you know, just be careful what you wish for because <laughs> perhaps your best skill is doing the fundamental job rather than getting a manager. And there's some people who are, who are naturally good managers who are empathetic and so on, and they should do that. Leave it to them. Right. Lovely. Thank you very much, Philip, for your time. Thank you very much. This was, this was lovely. Thank you so much. Thanks a lot. And, and bye I, bye. I think I, you, you're, I think it's it's there are so many things that we can talk about. For instance, you you also write about taking breaks and how important yeah. it is, which I found was interesting in that judges were, were less likely to grant parole before the lunch break and then before lunch than after. Yeah, exactly. Or at the end of the day. Yes. And uh, doctors are more likely to prescribe anti needless antibiotics <laughs> at the end of the day or before lunch. You know, all sorts of examples of that. People need breaks because they need um, you know mental the mental refreshment of of not concentrating on the one thing. I'll let you have yours now, Philip. Thank you so much. Thank you very much. <laughs>